Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For the longest time and to this day, I think being undocumented and the trauma that I experienced in which I was told to hide and to lie constantly, even in this country. I never felt comfortable being myself, my complete self. And so I think the personal goal is just to be seen. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, Ramon Alam. Ruman, it has been quite a week, and I know your book is coming out in the UK next week, so how you doing? It has been quite a week. You and I are speaking a couple of days after the presidential election, or I suppose we're actually still amid the presidential election because the votes have not all been counted. And all of this doesn't feel that great. There's like a kind of fatigue that sets in very quickly. So I think I feel as everyone does, which is a little crazy. Right. It's like uh, we're in purgatory and we're not sure if we're going to get sent down to hell or like what's going to happen. It's this eternal now that that never, ever, ever ends. So it was quite delightful to hear this interview that you did this week that I, I found quite inspiring. You You spoke to Javier Zamora. Can you tell us a bit about him? So I met Javier last year at Ithaca College. We were both guests at this festival called the New Voices Festival, which is a creative writing department program that brings writers from every discipline to the campus for a couple of days. So we were there with another novelist and an essayist and a playwright. It was really this lovely event, and I had the chance to hang out with Javier as a colleague. And the truth is that I know a lot of novelists, I know a lot of journalists, but I don't know a lot of writers in other disciplines. And... You might hear me confess to this inside of this conversation, but I don't really read a lot of poetry. So I first picked up Javier's book because I had a personal connection to him. And I'm so glad that I did, and it really made me want to talk to him on this podcast. So can you tell us about that book? Because uh, I imagine it's important to your talk with him. Yes, absolutely. Javier is the author to date of one book, which is called Unaccompanied. It was published by Copper Canyon in 2017. Maybe it's because I'm a writer myself, but I'm really sensitive to this relationship between the eye on the page and the writer behind the work. Of course, I knew the writer behind the work before I knew that eye on the page, but you really never want to assume anything, even if that assumption is based on the text right in front of you. You know, poetry isn't true. Even memoir isn't true. It's the subjective accounting of your life as you see it. But Javier's poems in Unaccompanied grapple with the experience of migrating into this country on foot via the southern border. The poems are really affecting, and they do have the feeling of testimony. Well, that's certainly a timely guest to talk to, given uh, what's been on the ballot this week. Before we get to the interview, we should also mention that we have a little uh, extra bonus treat for Slate Plus members after the regular episode. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, You'll hear me confess two things to Javier. 
The one is that I have this idea of the poet as an exalted presence who can provide a balm in a time of instability. I feel like all of us could use that right now, so I asked Javier who we should be reading right now to feel better. I also make a maybe embarrassing confession to Javier, who is himself a poet, that I often don't understand poetry, or I have this idea that poetry has to be difficult to be important. And Javier has a very interesting perspective on that particular issue. Well, that sounds amazing. Listeners, if you are not yet a member of Slate Plus, what gives, yo? You can get two free weeks right now. Just go to slate.com slash working plus. And if you enjoy this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. All right, now let's hear Ruman's conversation with Javier Zamora. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I was going to start with like the opposite of a softball question with a really big and hard question, which is this. Is all art political? And is your art political? Okay. Um, (laughs) I say yes and yes. I think that people or artists that say that their art is not political is already a political statement in and of itself and my art I started writing when I was still undocumented and just a teenager and so I always wanted it to be political you are a poet but is that the word that you would use to describe yourself like is that the word you use when you're filling out paperwork or when you're talking to a stranger at a party do you use the word poet with respect to your work I I rarely talk about myself at parties. <laughs> I never bring up uh, the f- fact that I'm a poet. But when I do, I say I'm a writer now. And What's the difference be- for you between those two words? Well, now because I'm writing a memoir and I'm writing prose and I've written some essays. So I guess I'm more comfortable at this current moment to say that I'm a writer because I'm not actively doing the poetry every day. I'm doing the prose every day. Did you grow up with an exposure to poetry, whether as a reader or as a writer, or is it something you came to later in your life? I was thinking about this, and yes, I grew up in El Salvador, and a cool practice in Salvadoran assemblies in school is to recite 
a poem. At least in my school, we did it. Every assembly, there was somebody that got up there and recited a poem from memory. And I was, not to brag, but I was a valedictorian <laughs> of my grade at my school. And so I, I was usually that person. So I think that was the exposure of poetry. And also Salvadorans, we're a very small nation, but we all know a poet. It's weird. Like, we have a lot of poets. We've always had a lot of poets. So my family always knew who Roca Dalton was and Pablo Neruda. Like, they had this weird um, CD. It wasn't Neruda reading them, but this singer reading Neruda's poems that my parents would play. So that was, like, the outside exposure. You mentioned earlier writing poems as a teenager. Were those the first poems that you wrote when you were a teen? First cognizant poems. There was that exposure as a little kid in El Salvador. I also, my parents, my dad left when I was one, my mom when I was about to turn five. And so I communicated via letters. So I think that's how I learned to emote. And then in this country, when I was a middle schooler, I remember Eight Mile came out. And I remember writing raps. And that's poetry. So I would like write raps. And then in high school, that's when I was like, okay, like I've had this training, not knowingly, but subconsciously. I was like, okay, I've had this training. Let's go. Let's put pen to paper what I'm actually feeling. And those first poems were about me being an immigrant and being undocumented. Because up to the time that I was 17, I had not told anybody. None of my best friends knew. And Mm. I never talked to my parents about my time crossing the desert. So it was like this huge secret that I feel like just needed to come out. Mm. So just to take a step back, you were born in El Salvador and your parents fled during that country's civil war, which was a period of massive instability in which the United States really played a large role. Many of the poems in your first book, which is called Unaccompanied, are very clearly about both your own memory of and yearning for home in El Salvador and the literal route that you took into this country. How do you, or how does a poet, choose to write about their own life? And what did that decision look like for you? Because you're not just writing about the experience you had in migrating to the United States, but you're writing about the experiences of your parents and the experiences of extended family. You're using the voices of people in your life. Is that something that you wrestled with or reckoned with? And, you know, how did you come to that approach to writing? I don't think it was so much of a choice. What hearing the your question just brought me back. I don't know if you remember in 2006, there was huge immigration protests. It was like the day without an immigrant. Mm-hmm. So across the nation, immigrants didn't go to work. And instead, they went out onto the streets. And it was this huge, oh my God moment in American history. Wow, there are millions of undocumented immigrants. We knew about them in my household my mom and my dad didn't let me go out and they didn't protest. We just stayed at home because they come from a country where protests are tear gassed and protesters are murdered during their time in El Salvador when there was a civil war. 
And I just remember having that fear, but then watching all these people dressed in white on TV and me not having, I, I was 16. I thought that I was too fearful and I wasn't courageous enough to participate in this historic movement. And that always stayed with me. I don't think it's a coincidence that the next year, literally in 2007, is when I first began to write. I think that movement gave me the courage to face who I was and who I am, which is an immigrant, not born in this country. And so it was a choice, but it wasn't a choice at the same time. Then I went to college and I was a history major. And I, want, I really wanted to write an oral history of why my parents fled El Salvador. And in that process, I got to interview them. And that has continues to be a practice in my prose work and in my poetry work. I interviewed my parents and then they opened up about things that they hadn't talked about before. So then that was almost, it was my choice to do that. But then it was their choice to be open to publishing those stories. You have a poem called Then It Was So. And there's an I, and there's a note at the end of the poem ascribing these words to dad, age 19. So I think the reader's assumption is that the I is your father speaking. When you're rendering that in poetry, are you literally transcribing or are you interpreting the words that your father said to you in that conversation? Both. For that one in particular, is not so much a transcription. The one that's more as a transcription from my dad's testimony would be This Was the Field, yeah. which is another poem. Yeah. But yeah, it, I think the starting point is the raw material and their interviews that they gave me. And then I aestheticize it and mm-hmm. try to make it, turn it into a poem. And do you seek their permission before putting it into the world or into the pages of a book? Everybody in that book, yes, except for my grandpa. Yeah. yeah. And they all granted me permission, except for my mom didn't want to let me publish postpartum for mm-hmm. obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But then eventually she came around. But my grandpa, I think it was too difficult to face him, even to this day, for like the domestic violence that he mm-hmm. made us all experience. You also have a poem called Exiliados, in which you write about romance. <laughs> I'm going to read a couple of the lines. In my humid pockets, my fists were old tennis balls thrown to the stray dog of love, bouncing toward the Hudson down to South Ferry. I love that line so much because I can feel my hands fisted inside of a pocket. I can feel like the nervous energy of romantic feeling and sexual feeling. Do you think about the tension in your own position as a poet who's brown, who's from El Salvador, who has this particular experience of coming to this country and the way that you did, Do you feel like you have to write about this and not write about romance or art or mortality or whatever it is poets write about? For a long time, I did. I thought that 
I was only my trauma. And I was only this grand, almost epic story. And I had many teachers. I think Sharon Olds was the one that pushed me towards the sensual. And she made me realize that my book also needed some of that balance. That if I were to self-critique my own first book, I think I needed to do more of that work because it's very trauma-heavy. So thank you for pointing that poem out because I, I did try to show that we're not only our experiences, but at the same time, like with that title, I'm still deep into the experience is what defines me, which in my personal life has been difficult to do away with, and I'm still trying to do away with. Right, because as you're saying, you're not just a performance of trauma. Mm-hmm. You're a full person. But also in that political moment, as you described, the day without an immigrant, for example, there was this necessity of being reminded of the simple existence of the immigrant in this country. And it's almost as though suggesting that those people are also human and love their children or want to have sex or, you know, drink too much or whatever it is that makes us human, that that would come later. But that first we just needed to be told, like, these people exist. And it feels like your book is an argument for that. It's just saying, here I am. I exist. You just use the word epic to describe your journey into this country And I wonder if you feel comfortable explaining to me a little bit about what that journey looked like Um, without the, without the veil of poetry. Cause like it's in the poems, but one of the questions that I came to is like, I want the story. I kind of want Javier to explain to me where the truth is. And so I wonder if you could just sort of give me the synopsis, the biographical synopsis. It's interesting because now, I think writing poetry was just me beginning to dig. There's a lot of gaps in in the poems. And I think the gaps are due to the hardships that I experienced as a nine-year-old kid. And so now writing this memoir, the memoir starts the day that I leave and it ends the day after I cross. So it all takes place in the present tense. And reliving that, rewriting that, I think couldn't have happened without the poems. But the short synopsis is that my parents had both left. I grew up from the ages of five till nine. I grew up with my grandparents, um, my grandma in particular, and my aunts. And then we tried the legal route to go to the U.S. Embassy and apply for status that did not happen. We tried multiple routes that did not happen. And then eventually this man was supposed to take me and a group of six other Salvadorans from El Salvador to the United States. He promised that he that trip was going to take one week, two weeks max. We spent two weeks in Guatemala. My grandpa is there with me. Um, I'm still accompanied, quote unquote. And then... Central Americans can travel to other Central American places. And then my dad, my grandpa had to leave. So then I'm left with strangers. And then we go, we spend another week in Guatemala at the coast. And then we take a boat from Guatemala to Oaxaca, a 20, almost like a day in the ocean. And then from there, we get 
robbed by Mexican police. And then we go to Acapulco for a day, and then we take a bus to Guadalajara. We stay there three weeks. And from there, finally, now we're only a group of five. We lost two of our people, five plus me. And then from there, eventually we make it to the U.S. border where we try attempt to cross through the Sonoran Desert multiple times until we successfully make it. And all of this takes place in eight weeks, eight, nine weeks. I am crying listening to you talk about this. I have two children. I have an eight-year-old and an 11-year-old. My 11-year-old is not even allowed to go to the corner store. He's just now allowed to go to the corner store. He's allowed to cross the street. It's a busy intersection. And go to the store. I'm struck by what you've said, which is that the poems are almost a first draft of you understanding your own life. Because now you're writing about it in a memoir form from the vantage of adulthood, trying to remember something that happened to you when you were just a kid. Very few people, myself, I mean, at least me, I can't remember anything that happened to me when I was nine, let alone a sustained period of eight weeks when I was nine years old. Like, it's very hard to actually hold on to that stuff. I'll tell you this. There's a poem, Saguaros, in there. In my memory, I could guarantee you that I saw huge cactus, Saguaros. I couldn't go back to the border because I didn't have papers until last year. And I'm in Arizona right now uh, trying to finish this book in the landscape. So I've gone to the border trying to see where exactly it was that I attempted to cross. And I think I've narrowed it down to the area. And there are no saguaros there. They don't grow. And rarely along the border do they grow. And so in my memory, I'm like, oh, that did not happen factually, but it did feel like that emotionally. So there's that. Mm. And it rings true emotionally, for the most part, in poems. And now I feel like I gave myself a pass in poetry. And now I am not trying to do that in prose. Because it's nonfiction and they all get into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but poetry and poetry, like, that's an interesting tension because poetry isn't fiction either, but mm-hmm. nor is it memoir. Like, no, nor it's not nonfiction. It's not like a, it's not, it doesn't have to be testimony. So what is it you're trying to do? Like, what is the purpose of creating you know, of writing a poem about this imagination that you had of what the landscape looked like? What's the goal of that? I think essentially it's creating empathy. I want the readers to really feel what I felt in order for them to truly understand what it's like to be a child immigrant. And once they have that knowledge, and if I did my job correctly, then they're not kind of a Republican. (laughs) That is, I think, is the goal. Is there another goal? Is there like a more personal goal? Like you're talking about your goal for what the reader will feel. Yeah, the political goal. The personal goal is, I, I just want to feel seen. You know, for the longest time, and to this day, I think 
being undocumented and the trauma that I experienced in which I was told to hide and to lie constantly, even in this country. And so I never felt comfortable being myself, my complete self. And so I think the personal goal is just to be seen. We'll be back with more of Ruman's conversation with Javier Zamora after this. Hey there, listeners. Do you have a question about your own work? Well, let us know. We talk to brilliant people all the time, and we are more than happy to ask them for advice on your behalf. Seriously. Give us a ring at 304-933-WORK or drop us a line at working at slate.com. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. We have some really great guests lined up that you won't want to miss. Okay. Now let's rejoin Ruman's conversation with Javier Zamora. I wonder if you can tell me, when you're beginning a poem, are you starting with an image? Are you starting with a phrase? Or are you starting with an idea of what the poem should accomplish? Or are you starting with the form? Like, are you saying, I'm going to write a sonnet, I'm going to write a villanelle? Like, what is, what's the point at which you start writing? And also, how do you know when you're done? For this first book, it was mostly a memory. Most of the poems started with a memory or an image. Or I was hiking and I was reminded of the landscape and then I wrote it down and then it moved from there. Form came later. Form came in revision. But always it was was a personal memory and it was for myself. So I could write it down so I wouldn't forget it because I was always afraid. And to this day, I've always been afraid of forgetting, in a weird way, forgetting what I experienced. Mm. So when we meet the I in all of these poems, can we safely place you in that I? Like, that's you? Or is there some distance there between you, the person, and you, the I, inside of a poem? I think that I is not me in real life the I is my trauma inside of me the one that's speaking and the other eyes are like when it says my dad is speaking that's them yeah, yeah. and I think that's also their trauma is not who they are completely are mm. in the real world and so the I would be that what I experienced you have a long poem at the conclusion of this book called June 10th 1999 there's a section in which you write In public again, writing at the corner, so people can't see line breaks, so they think I'm essayist. Maybe I'm ashamed. Maybe I don't want them reading this. That was not part of Mi Vida Gringa. Do you feel uncomfortable inhabiting the role of the poet? Like, does it feel like it's (laughs) not serious or that it's insubstantial or that it's maybe not what your parents wanted for you in this American life? Absolutely. Um... I'm an only child of immigrant parents. And whether they realized it or not, they always, in passing, they would be like, oh, go to college, become a lawyer, you know, become an engineer, you know, something that would, or maybe do business, something that makes money. And poetry does not make money. (laughs) And 
being an artist does not make money. And so eventually they came around when I got a huge scholarship to go to NYU. Like I didn't have to pay to get my MFA and I got a stipend. And my, I think both of my parents were like, what? <laughs> there is money in poetry, some money in poetry. <laughs> and so since then, they've been supporting me 100%. But yes, I was always ashamed when I began to write. I was always ashamed to use huh, the term poet. So maybe that's still there, which is at the beginning of the interview. Yeah. I was like, oh, maybe I'm not a poet. Maybe I'm a writer. And I, it's a great segue because this is a podcast about work. And so I'm, I'm curious to ask you about the practical matters, about how a poet pays the bills and whether the work of surviving as just a human being in this country interferes with your ability to write poetry or whether it actually helps you write. I think I've had an unusual path to where I am today. I consider myself lucky in the sense that I think I wrote something that was necessary at the time. It was a historical thing. I was saying that I was undocumented before people, before that word I even entered the lexicon, which I attribute to me winning all these grants and fellowships. I've had the privilege to go from one thing to the next to the next. So at a literal level, poetry has paid me to my mom's liking. It has. <laughs> um, but at the same time, there's like this snowball effect that it gets thrown around a lot in poetry. Oh, you once you begin to publish, it begins to snowball. The snowball has stopped rolling for me in poetry. And I've gotten to see what academia is like and I'm trying to hold off as long as possible because it feels like high school to me. Mm. I don't want to go back to high school yet. Yeah. And so I think that's why I'm writing this project in prose because one, the financials and two, because I got into writing poetry because there was no book of poems by a Salvadoran, published by a mayor press. That is still the case in prose. There hasn't been a memoir about an immigrant from El Salvador written by a Salvadoran. And 10 years into the writing world, that's sad mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. And I hope that it also pays the bills. <laughs> <laughs> when you talk about the snowball has stopped rolling... I mean, I think back to before when I asked you about writing about romance or like a human experience that's distinct from an experience that's dictated by your political identity. Do you feel like you need to continue to investigate your own political identity and poetry in order to remain viable? Like, do you feel like you would have the permission from the market or from the academy or from the people who publish poetry to write a book of poetry about love or poetry about ambition or poetry about art that's not necessarily grappling with the exterior circumstances of your identity? I think those pressures are there from the academy, from the poetry world. And they're also in my head. Mm. 
I don't think that I've healed enough from that project. I'm still obsessed with it. I had the privilege to have Louise Gluck, who is now a poet, a Nobel laureate. She was my teacher at Stanford. And she was the best teacher I ever had. And she also encouraged me to stop writing about immigration. And I did for a year. And then to her disliking, I went back full on because I'm still, and I explained it as, and she saw it. She's like, well, I can't do anything. Let's just look at these poems. I was like, <laughs> I was like yeah, okay, cool. Um, and I think it's just a personal thing. I might be one of those writers that always has to write about immigration. I don't want to, but there's something still inside of me that's like, dude, you're not healed yet. Like, you have to look at this shit like in this way, this way, the other way. Um, so I don't know. You mentioned that you studied at NYU and then you were at Stanford working with Louise Glick. There's a school of thought that like you can pursue graduate study and improve yourself as a writer. And then there are people who say like, oh, actually maybe you're better off if you don't go near the academy, if you stay outside of those influences and you work from a place that's sort of more pure artistically. I mean, clearly I know that you chose the academy, but like, what's your thought about that particular tension between like being the artist who you are versus like studying and improving inside of the context of a classroom? I think you just need time and space. And for me, the academic route has provided that for me. I think it's much harder to work overtime or a nine to five and write than to be in the academy. I think it's easier. And for me, that was the route that I chose. And I didn't go into debt for it. So for listeners out there, I wouldn't go into debt trying to get an MFA in fiction or poetry because your the odds are against you and the university knows that and and so i think you just need to find ways that you could get time and space that's all you need you need time and space to read and to write and write and revise and revise mentorship is nice but i don't think you need it a lot of teachers of poetry don't tell you the complete truth or they don't understand what type of feedback you need. I am of the group that needs direct, honest feedback, meaning if my poem sucks, tell me and I will redo it. I rarely encounter that. And the teachers that would do that were Yusuf Kamanyaka uh, and Louise Gluck for the most part. And Brenda Shaughnessy. They were like, cut this, cut that. And I think I see a lot of workshops not leaning towards that. More towards praise, praise, praise. Mm -hmm. Praise is great, but you also need the this shit sucks, cut this. <laughs> you know? The two voices are necessary. And sometimes the MFA is useful for that. This episode will air later, but 
Right now, I'm speaking to you the day before the presidential election in this country. Ugh. And that was by design. Um, when I was thinking about a guest, I was thinking about, like, who could I possibly talk to right now? Who would I even want to hear from right now? I really felt like a poet was the right answer. Hmm. And I wonder if you feel like that's part of the job description. That you're not just writing down things about nature or about your own memory, about your life. That poetry itself as an undertaking holds something else for people. Absolutely. I think the rest of the world until recently, poets were the vanguard. And they were the truth tellers. And they tend to be almost people that can tell the future. And so I do find some sort of responsibility into tapping into I don't know what and seeing the world for what it is and what it could be and what it shouldn't be. And I remember I had a reading the day before the elections last time around. And I remember hoping that Trump wouldn't win and knowing that even if Hillary Clinton was going to win, I told the audience that our work is not done because she would have been the head of mass deportations and wars all over the world. And I guess it's the same thing now. I hope Trump doesn't win and I hope Biden does. But our job is not over just because the face of the president changes. A lot of things will change, (laughs) but more needs to change still. I wanted to talk to you today because I wanted you to make me feel better, very selfishly. And I have to say that I do feel better. So Javier, this was really such a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to me. Oh, thank you for having me. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Ruman, I was so happy that you started this wonderful conversation with a very direct question about politics and art. I happen to be one of those all art is political types, although there's lots of art with politics I disagree with that I still love, of course. But uh, what about you? How do you think about that question? 
Yeah, absolutely. There is a lot of great art that's politically troubling or the product of people whose politics we might find abhorrent. You know, Javier, in our conversation, mentioned both T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound. Those guys are case in point. You know, you have to hold certain contradictions in mind that a person could do bad things or think bad things, but still make nice art. Or that a book or a film or what have you could propagate troubling ideas, but still be beautiful. Absolutely. To me, it's like one of the things in the nexus of, you know, factors that you consider, right? There's like, it's aesthetic brilliance. It's whatever its project is. The, and and politics sort of weaves all within that. It, it's seldom the be all or the end all of why we should or shouldn't like or appreciate a worker artist, I feel like. And also, I think in a moment where we talk so much about cancellation, right, and sensitivity to uh, work meeting certain philosophical standards, I don't think that's really useful either. I think you still have to listen to Wagner, even if Wagner has been co-opted by the right, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you're talking to a guy who's, you know, my previous podcast for Slate was all about Shakespeare. And one of my favorite Shakespeare comedies, uh, Much Ado About Nothing, contains a line, if I do not love her, I am a Jew. So, you know, like as a Jew, it's like, you know, uh, I I think there's all sorts of identity groups where you end up in a very bizarre relationship and a fraught one with texts from antiquity, especially that you love. The political project of Javier's poetry is clearly part of his creative process. And I was fascinated that one thing Louise Gluck tried to do was to push him away from that to figure out other things that he was capable of as a poet. And one of the poems that resulted from that is is wonderful, but it also felt discomforting that a white creative writing professor was prevailing upon an immigrant poet to stop writing about the more harrowing parts of his personal experience. What did you make of that? I think it makes a lot of sense with respect to Glick's own interest in the sensual, right, that she might nudge him in that particular direction. And I think I can understand that because I myself responded to that particular poem of Javier's because it wasn't grappling directly with his experience of being an immigrant, but with something more widely accessible to the reader. It was just showing off what he can do with words. I don't think that kind of caution is necessarily about inhibiting him from engaging with this material. I actually think it's about setting him free. Yeah, totally. And this might be because my first book is an oral history, but I loved that Javier borrowed from that form for his poetry. I really think a lot of interesting work can come out of stealing the tools of one form and adapting them to the one you're working with. Like in my own work, I am so much more likely to find formal inspiration in a documentary or a comic book or a play than in another work of prose nonfiction for whatever reason. Do you think about this, like either with your students or with your own writing? Absolutely. All the time. Um, When I teach writing, I talk a lot about the sitcom as a kind of perfect form. I think that wherever you find inspiration, that's valid. And you need to accrue the tools that will help you get your work done. You know, part of why poetry in particular is so daunting to me is precisely what you're talking about. If you think about T.S. Eliot referencing the Golden Bough in The Wasteland, I mean, that's what academic papers do, not poetry. But of course, poetry can do anything, and every form can. Poets have maybe known that for longer, or maybe it's more inherent to the project of the poem, but that's what makes them simple, but it's also what makes them kind of incredible. 
Yeah. And I also really appreciated that as Javier is transitioning to doing nonfiction, however, he's not like abandoning the strictures of that genre either. For example, around factual accuracy, in part, maybe this is getting into the weeds, but in the kind of MFA universe, there is this movement often led by people sort of affiliated with poetry to do away with the idea that nonfiction has to be rigorous with the facts. I thought that it was really interesting to hear him talk about his memoir in progress and to hold that work up against the poems. By talking about the work that way, Javier kind of helped quell one of my initial concerns with reading Unaccompanied, which is reading Javier into the poetic eye who we meet on these pages. He helped me understand that that was an accurate way of reading But I had a very different experience hearing him simply tell the story of how he came to this country. I mean, you heard in this conversation, I started crying just hearing him explain it to me directly to my face over Zoom, so to speak, to my face. But um, the poems have a similar effect. But that direct testimony, I also found really powerful. So I think it's a way of showing you that there are sort of multiple paths leading to the same destination. Ruman, that's a wonderful note on which to end this episode. Listeners, by the time you hear this episode, uh, hopefully all of the tsuris and drama of this week has been resolved. But if it hasn't, we hope you're finding space to uh, be calm and take care of yourself in the midst of everything that's going on. And we hope you've enjoyed this show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you'll never miss an episode. And yes, I am now going to give you the standard contractually obligated Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and more importantly, you'll be supporting the work we do right here on Working. It's only $35 for the first year, and you get a free two-week trial now at slate.com slash working plus. Thanks to Javier Zamora and our amazing producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with a conversation between our colleague June Thomas and the television producer Jenny Thompson. Until then, get back to work.